Now is the time for questions and answers. I'll try to uh, respect uh, and honor each one of the questions that came into the box, if I can, and also to um, leave time for uh, a couple of um, verbal questions. How do you stop clinging to wishes and fears? I think that this question is uh, speaking to a phenomenon that we would like to get rid of, uh, but they continue to obsess the mind, even though we think that we're tired of them and we'd like to let them go. Uh, the particular uh, method I use uh, for uh, persistent, uh, uh, useless, or either useless or afflictive uh, states of mind is uh, first to try to have uh, some uh, clarity and uh, honesty in terms of to what extent this <coughs> experience is helping me and to what extent it's hurting me. Then I try uh, uh, with uh, uh, wisdom, if it's something that I, is really not helping me that I want to let go of, I would break it down into how it's manifesting in the physical body, how it is um, experienced as a feeling, uh, what are the perceptions, in other words, what names I'm giving to this experience, uh, what is the volition associated there, what am I intending to do, and um, what uh, is the consciousness, that's the five aggregates. So if the experience is um, uh, let's say um, I'm addicted to uh, the news and I notice that when I'm um, tired at the end of the day uh, but I don't want to go into meditation and mindfulness but I want to be become numb I might turn on and uh, flip through some uh, news uh, websites say, uh, and, that, and I've recognized that as a bad habit. So then I would, would you know, specifically uh, do the investigation. How is it, like, what is, what's the physical thing happening when I have that temptation? And what's the physical result of it? <coughs> and then I may see if I can do something different physically. So, like, if I feel stressed out and exhausted at the end of a busy day with maybe too many things, um, maybe I could get more uh, refreshment from taking a walk instead of uh, looking at news. Or, so I would do something different to try to shift something physical. Uh, what's happening is the mind and body is working together. And if the mind is in one fixed state and the body is in a corresponding state and they're locking together and feeding each other and I, I can't seem to get out of this mental groove I'm in if I can shift the physical body energy that can also open the space for the mind to shift but likewise uh, when there's a uh, I see the feeling part of it I may investigate how a transient the feelings are, how they, they come and go so easily and develop a little bit more uh, 
uh, equanimity to be able to withstand unpleasant feelings without being upset about it, to just allow them to be there and to go on, and rather than going into reactivity. Um, when I'm looking at perception, I ask myself this important question, is this perception true or false? Or is it true or is it distorted? And if the perception is distorted, I try to um, uh, become a little more, more honest. Then uh, the one about uh, volition is actually the most uh, powerful uh, in this particular technique I have for getting out of persistent afflictive states. Uh, if I say, if I have this uh, um, fears, okay, I have these fears, uh, I would like inquire, like I talk to my fear and say, okay, Mrs. Fear, what is it that you really want me to do? And when I see um, like what the answer is, sometimes that's also like a dose of reality that kind of uh, stops the whole thing, that, that is, enables me to be able to move out of the process. And then um, the uh, consciousness in particular um, that I'm interested in is uh, sometimes um, there's a conscious, a kind of a, a kind of a conscious awareness where we are locked onto our object. The mind does not have the reflective, mindful way of seeing our own state, but instead becomes completely absorbed in in something outside, and. It can happen that it, our, our self-awareness is, is being built up by the story we say about something outside. So if I'm saying, that so-and-so always does that to me, and he's been doing that to me ever since forever, and it, just like my father used to do the same thing to me, and I, I can't stand it when people are like that, and so, you know some kind of story like that, then... Um, uh, it may be that um, I'm giving myself some energy or something or, or I'm making you know doing some, some kind of a, of, a, of a protective thing for uh, having a, or having some kind of like a self-image I guess in that case I would say that's a self-image of myself as a victim and so I do, I, do I really want to have the kind of consciousness that's like a victim self dealing with an oppressor or other or something like that? And, and when I see it clearly, then maybe I'm, I'm able to uh, shift it in some way. Um, the other um, uh, So it's basically by way of working through this analysis with five aggregates to get rid of persistent states and uh, developing uh, wisdom um, is I'm trying to present with this uh, uh, three marks of existence to shift uh, the whole point of view. Um, if I'm really in a bad state, the safest and most comforting um, way to get the mind out of a negative groove and into a better groove to me is to open any of the discourses of the Buddha and just read discourses. And that somehow seems, for me, that, that's what's effective in, in um, 
uh, getting out of a, out of a fixed roof. Um, can I speak about perception and projection? Uh, so, uh, perception is how we recognize, called sanya. So, nya is knowing. This is in Buddhist word. The Buddhist word tra uh, translated as perception um, is knowing something together with something else. So, what we're doing is uh, there's something we're experiencing in the here, here and now, and we're putting it together with something that we've learned and remembered from the past. And so I may see um, this um, object and recall that that's a rose because I've experienced them before and I've learned their name. Um, so I get the perception of a rose or I get the perception of red. Um, and I may have a bunch of other perceptions because of whatever past experiences I've had with roses. Um, I think by um, a projection is when uh, there's something that is actually an internal uh, process that's happening within me and I um, imagine that it's happening uh, with uh, other people <coughs> which could be accurate sometimes um, and uh, Look at, the, look at the Blessed One. You know, he didn't have hundreds of grad students subjecting themselves to questionnaires and tests in order to prove his theories. He was a human being. And he looked uh, uh, within himself and he knew his own reality at the most profound level. And then through that knowledge, he was able to discern what uh, is also the reality for other beings. It said that he had the uh, supernormal vision where he was able to see how uh, other beings are born and reborn um, according to their karma. So the way he, he saw that was first he saw how he had been born and reborn according to his own karma during his, his past lifetimes. And so from seeing it internally, one could have inferential knowledge that it's happening externally with others. So it's not, projection is not necessarily a bad thing, but it can be a bad thing if, uh, our, um, if we guess wrong. And um, someone who um, has a very strong psychological pattern assumes that I have the same pattern, but I don't. Um, and uh, not, to, not to worry about it. The, the main thing is that um, uh, knowing that um, uh, perception is part of the uh, process that we use in um, building up our experience of the world and that it's uh, frequently unreliable. Oh, I like this one. How do we witness and support someone else's extreme anger and suffering? Uh, I think that, uh, uh, first of all, when um, the other person is in a, a wholesome, 
sort of like a dharma relationship that they're trying to work on their stuff and then countering obstacles in working on their business and then uh, um, connecting with me as being their uh, spiritual friend. In a case like that, uh, what I'm aiming for is a very uh, neutral uh, kind of uh, full attention and full awareness to receive uh, what they have at the particular moment without having a strong necessity to quick fix it because it's making me uncomfortable or a need to necessarily uh, uh, you know, condemn or judge or anything like that, but simply to uh, know what's happening and to do some kind of a reflective process where I'm acknowledging what they're experiencing. Um, then if they uh, want um, my um, help to um, uh, get out of it, I may try to uh, respond in accord with the Dharma of what I understand is the relevant uh, teachings of, of, um, of, of the Buddha that, that applies to anger. It happens in the monastery all the time because people come to the monastery because they're suffering. And if they are practicing well, they're going deep, deep, deep into all of their uh, stuff. And then their, their uh, inner um, uh, defilements, because it's a safe space, it can naturally happen that um, even people who are you know, psychologically normal and healthy, not to mention people who've had all kind of um, difficulties in life, can come and they can experience a lot of fear, anxiety, anger, difficulties, all the business comes up. And, and then uh, uh, the role of the, mon- the reason why the monastery is a therapeutic community is because then we have the ability to uh, kind of like safely hold all this uh, sometimes negative, difficult energy so that it can be experienced and the person is able to uh, work through it and come around to a place of wisdom. You addressed ways to relieve our personal pain and suffering. What about the endless pain and suffering of others? What is our response? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, so one part is, as I mentioned, um, this uh, kind of witnessing. Another part is, in terms of the Buddhist uh, precepts of morality, I think it's uh, really um, completely suitable for a Buddhist to individually practice uh, what is ethical and also to speak up about what is ethical and to say, you know, I recommend not killing. I recommend not destroying the planet. And um, if you care about what I have to say, you know, this is this is my advice. Um, in the case of uh, many of the social problems that we confront uh, today, the kind of um, this is a whole other talk. I give this at uh, I've been recently. I've been giving talks about Buddhist justice, like uh, in the case of all of the uh, social conflict that we've been having recently with institutional racism and uh, uh, violence against people. Uh, that uh, a, uh, a Buddhist uh, process of justice 
is designed towards reconciliation uh, so that we have and we express uh, very high standards of behavior and try to create a sense of community, not just with our own group, but kind of like a larger community that encompasses everybody and encompasses the bad guys as well as the good guys. And then uh, uh, try to enunciate these high expectations, but then also to have a safe uh, way for individuals and institutions that have behaved badly uh, to be able to make a sincere apology and to um, uh, rectify their misbehavior and make amends and, um, and undertake a change so they don't continuously repeat the same bad actions. Um, instead of that, what's happening is in our modern society, it's unsafe for institutions and people to admit their wrongdoing because if they admit that they messed up, then they'll be in even worse trouble. So I highly recommend, you know, think of like um, at the end of apartheid, like what was done with the reconciliation in South Africa, anything that we can recommend and do to make our justice system more oriented towards rehabilitation and reconciliation. Um, and it, I don't mean letting people get away with things, but I mean uh, creating uh, channels that make it possible for individuals and institutions to change in good ways. And that is very important work that's pers very relevant to ending suffering. So we don't have to, uh, we can't stop the war unless we become peaceful inside. So we got to do the inside work to become peaceful ourselves. But when now that we've become peaceful and good, uh, we can be engaged with uh, society in, uh, in real ways. Uh, please give examples of how to manage extreme feelings of fear. Well, I sort of answered that. Uh, so, uh, in addition to what I said before about the um, trying to break it down and um, basically uh, subdivide the fear into its components in order to find something that we can get a handle on and shift in order to change the, the pattern. Uh, another uh, something that's really great is having a good friend. Uh, fear is a kind of aversion. It's uh, generally not a wholesome mind state. Uh, there's one kind of fear that is wholesome, and that is uh, to be afraid to do something wrong because you would not want to get the consequences of evil and wholesome immoral behavior. So you're afraid to do something immoral. Um, but you only need to be afraid just for a second, just long enough to not to stop from doing it. You don't want to be continuously beset by fear. If you are beset by fear, consider, okay, this is a afflictive, it's a hindrance, it's a kind of aversion, it's not recommended by the Buddha, we don't want to live in this state, we want to find the ways to get out of it, uh, and then find, uh, find good friends, find good spiritual friends and mentors who you can confide in that can help you walk through. A lot of times with fear, what does fear do? It makes you stop. Like you're approaching something fearful and then you oh, can't do it. Uh, then um, get a friend to hold your hand to help you, you know, walk up and uh, approach the thing that's, that's uh, fearful, fearful. And then at the same time you, you do all of the other work that's provided in the Dhamma.
regarding intense emotional physical anxiety states after losing two family and friends, what aspect of practice can help? I see the impermanence and how these deaths are expected and put me uh, closer with my own mortality, yet still these states are fairly intolerable. Any thoughts? Uh, so time is a great healer after uh, intense grief. If we can just be able to uh, practice a patient endurance with the difficult states, uh, to um, have good friends, and to have hope that even though after a loss it may seem that every time we think of our dear one, we think of something painful about it, that eventually the heart inclines towards healing and happiness if we give it space to do that. And eventually we'll be able to think of our dear one instead of remembering the most horrible, painful things, we'll remember the things that were delightful and beautiful and makes us smile and laugh. Um, And we can also uh, take hope in knowing that because we're having to go through the um, valley of intense difficulty, uh, we're gaining something in terms of the capacity for real effective compassion that we're not the only one who has to experience this. Other people experience loss and suffering. And if we can make it through, then we can become a really good, strong, effective bodhisattva that is able to help other people to get through their suffering because we can show them that there is an end to it. There is a way to get out. Have the techniques associated with the three marks of existence been tried with mentally ill people or with those who become uh, violently out of control? Uh, We had um, uh, generally in in, uh, times of extremity, uh, we uh, go in more towards a kind of a tranquility practice and also having uh, a very uh, safe and protected environment. Actually, the monastery is great for people who are like psychopaths or something like that because there's all these like rules and regulations and it's all kind of like quiet and there's not a lot of interaction so there's not that much that's going to get them to be triggered. Um, so I when, someday I'll, I'll start a... Um, a mental health monastery um, where they can, um, uh, where we can get some people who really have those skills uh, together with a, following a, a actually Buddhist path. But I've I've seen that the combination of loving kindness practice, uh, tranquility oriented meditation, and uh, a very uh, structured safe environment with rules and regulations like you have to get up at this time, you have to be at meditation at this time, then you have to have breakfast, then you have your chore, and then you have lunch, and then you you know, do another activity, and, and the whole day is kind of like programmed like that with um, a very um, uh, calm kinds of um, uh, communication and interactions with people can be a nice um, healing space for people to do the work. I don't know about using the 
Tilakana specifically with, with mentally ill people. Can you speak to using this technique to understand and manage negative and critical conditioned thought patterns? How one can contemplate non-self impermanence and suffering when encountering uh, powerful and painful ways of thinking negatively about oneself and others. Uh, in my own history, I had to first spend a number of years working on the medicine to use while I was actually in the middle of the afflictive states. And then later, when my experience with the afflictive states was like much quicker and more sporadic and not just not that dominating of my life, then I was able to work on doing these uh, um, three elements, uh, three uh, marks of existence meditation as a sort of a preventive medicine. So I think um, uh, when one is... Um, in a state of extremity, uh, try practicing for samadhi. Don't expect to accomplish anything in meditation. Just go with the breath and just, like, don't look for trouble. Trouble will come to you. Um, just watch the breath, relax, do deep relaxation, relaxing the body. And then uh, when uh, strong negative thoughts and feelings come up, uh, try to just look at that and make a note of whether it's permanent or impermanent. And then as soon as you're able to put that down and come back to doing a tranquility work, tranquility practice. So I would say at least that one mark of existence about uh, impermanence can be very useful when someone is in extremity. I would be careful about meditating on non-self when one is in an extreme emotional state because there's a danger of the spiritual bypass. You said that non-self is inextricably intertwined with safety and not danger. This is fascinating, but could I clarify? Thank you. Okay. Um, What I mean is um, if my ego is very large and I'm identified with a lot of things as being part of my ego, like let's say all of my possessions, my mansion, my car, my job, my reputation, my career, and all of those things, and if I have such a, a brutal ego that if any of those things is impinged on, I can't bear the loss because I feel like it's hurt me. Then I've got so much work to do in uh, defending the self. But then if the self sort of gets, or the ego gets shrunken down to being sort of a right size, kind of a natural size, I have much less to defend. And it's a more uh, relaxed kind of existence. Um, But then the people who I see who are spiritual... um, people with a very highly accomplished practice, it's the most remarkable thing to see how um, things that are seriously irritating can happen and 
these people are like Teflon. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't bum them, it doesn't burn them out. And they just come back in the same uh, bright, um, friendly, and warm manner, speaking from the Dhamma, uh, regardless of, of what kind of um, annoyance they've been subjected to. And I believe that that's because um, the, uh, of their, they're not identifying with things. So even if somebody has like messed up my monastery or something, you know, it's not me, not mine, it, it doesn't, it's all right. You know, even if somebody, let's say somebody uh, disrespects Buddhism, it's not a problem. You know, if somebody um, uh, is uh, not following the right uh, monastic etiquette and being respectful because I'm a, a bhikkhuni and you should, you know, respect me because I'm, I'm wearing the banner of the arahant, the robes of the, of the Buddha, so you should respect me, but maybe you won't. And so that's okay because I'm not identifying with it because of the, my developing the uh, awareness of non-self. And that way I'm safe because all of these insults don't hurt me. That's the safety. Is jhana a practice part of your practice? Why, why not? I'm not a master of jhana. Um, and in part, I mentioned it earlier because as a recovering alcoholic and addict, I have got a deep resistance to bliss. Um, like bliss is not um, safe for me. So, um, but I'm, I'm, I keep trying. <laughs> uh, when I feel pain, do I focus on it and go into it or just try to ignore it and keep watching the breathing? Uh, if I'm doing a concentration practice, I would try to ignore the pain and not give it any special value. It's not that I'm pushing it away, but I'm just staying like, kind of like neutral towards it. So my aim towards pain or anything afflictive is just um, a sort of even, evenly hovering attention uh, with, uh, combined with uh, compassion. I'm not going to be able to do all these questions. Sorry. Uh, this one's too difficult. Sorry. <laughs> uh, to manage our stubborn Western minds, how do you feel about using cannabis and other substances to help in achieving a higher level of consciousness? No pun intended. Um, obviously, it can have some value. What is it? Um, I, I think that the uh, appropriate use of, of uh, medicine for pain is, um, is definitely suitable, and I don't agree with uh, people who say that, like, if we're a Buddhist, we should not use medication to help us to manage pain. Uh, pain can be, like, to try to meditate when one is in severe pain, it can be um, um, really tough, and it, and it could uh, defeat you and, and make it impossible for you to practice. Um, in using um, uh, like a narcotic sometimes for uh, I don't know about using cannabis for pain using narcotic for pain uh, one can have the experience that this hurts but I don't care 
because it doesn't really relate to me or something. Like it's sort of like it's happening. It's a big, a big uh, level of detachment. And um, uh, uh, to my knowledge, uh, people who use medicate use substances for pain are not getting high, are not getting heedless uh, because of their substance use. They're just getting back to normal. And it's the same thing with using um, whatever medication is out there for uh, depression or other kinds of, of uh, states. I've heard that uh, in treatment of depression that using like a, a psilocybin or magic mushroom kind of psychedelic drugs is now coming back in vogue, uh, studied for depression because uh, in a depression the mind gets into a rut and it keeps like going through the same groove over and over again and digging that rut deeper and deeper and making it more fixed. And the doctors think that um, using psychedelics sort of like causes this massive interconnectivity and the whole er, blackboard is erased as far as the you know, habitual patterns. So in combination with other kinds of therapy, who knows. I don't recommend using, um, generally I... I'm a monastic. I can't recommend using any uh, substance that would cause heedlessness. Um, in other words, that would um, make you become unmindful and uh, uh, to do without, you know, through lack of awareness to make all kinds of other mistakes and to hurt yourself and others. Uh, what advice do you have for someone who thinks they may be in the awakening process? Um, Meditation relatively new for me, uh, so on and so on. Uh, um, okay, so uh, read uh, the suttas and learn about the path of gradual training, and uh, just just keep practicing uh, mindfully. Uh, so we're all in a process of awakening, and the things that can open up for people at the uh, beginning of their practice can be really incredible. Now. It might be that uh, someone who just encounters Buddhism might you know, have this many breakthroughs and then come to a plateau and go for a long time without further breakthroughs and then, um, and, and then could make uh, some other uh, progress because other circumstances in their life are evolving. Just uh, try to... Um, uh, don't get too excited with... Uh, with what you have, and try to methodically and regularly keep practicing. Whether you're feeling breakthroughs or whether you're feeling a plateau, uh, just keep on steadily practicing and learning. We're coming to our time? Okay, good. Um, should I stop before 5 o'clock? Okay, with, um, um, okay, there's one question I wanted to answer. Um, not that one. <laughs> uh, can I please talk about forgiveness in Buddhism? I'm having a hard time forgiving someone who does not acknowledge the harm she has caused. Um, I think there's one process which is about apology and forgiveness, which is part of the system of actually the system of justice and morality that we follow within the monastery in which I recommend for society. 
that we should make it easy for people to apologize when they've done something wrong and to try to amend themselves. And then if an apology is made, they ought to be forgiven. And rather than trying to further punish them, we should try to support them to become reconciled to the community and to amend their, their um, misbehavior. Now, when you have a person who doesn't see their fault and doesn't amend their behavior, um, you know, in a certain kind of way, you're forgiving them. But I think the more relevant Buddhist idea is loving kindness and the Brahma Viharas. So if you, somebody is misbehaving and they don't see their fault, uh, you yourself try to develop an attitude of kindness and friendliness towards them, regardless of what they're doing. You yourself have compassion for the suffering that they're um, in and for the unwholesome um, karmas that they're building up by their uh, bad behavior. Um, even if you see someone behaves badly and they seem to get away with it, I guess you can have some uh, sympathetic joy or mudita and appreciate, wow, lucky guy, they got away with it, and, um, and um, develop uh, 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 equanimity so that your own peace of mind is not going to be shaken up by whether the people around you are behaving well or badly. Uh, so I think the four Brahma Viharas are really the most relevant practice when someone doesn't see their fault, and that uh, forgiveness is a really great practice to use when someone does see their fault. Um, I can't see it. Somebody said uh, it got lost. Somebody asked a question about becoming a Buddhist nun, asked what to do if they want to be a Buddhist nun, um, and how to know whether it's the right time or not. if you're interested in monastic life, I suggest uh, visiting um, the monastery or the temple and hanging out with uh, monks and nuns, and then uh, going to uh, visit and taking a short uh, um, uh, spells of uh, residency in a, in a monastic environment, um, and gradually uh, extending the amount of time and seeing whether that particular uh, situation is uh, fruitful and makes you feel that you're able to advance in the practice. Um, uh, the right time to ordain would be uh, when you have been able to, in an honest and clear way, taking care of your responsibilities. <coughs> so if you have debts, you should pay them. Um, if you have uh, uh, children, you should raise them. Or see that that they are going to be uh, properly taken care of. If you have a a spouse, you should have an amicable resolution of the the marriage, since uh, monastic life is a a celibate lifestyle that's not um, suitable for one who is still involved in uh, uh, being in love with their spouse. Um, And um, uh, then um, if you are uh, free and uh, you don't have any uh, obligations, Uh, a good time to go forth is now uh, because you don't know when something's going to happen and you're going to lose the physical and mental abilities that you have now. So it might not be possible to do later on. Uh, I think this is a
I'm sorry, I can't answer all of these questions. Uh, if you, I didn't answer your question, you can come up to me in the minutes afterwards, because I want to let everybody go on time. Um, how can you maintain the state of being uh, neutral when facing constant criticism about mistakes I make? How can one relax into what one is, i.e. the natural state, while competing for jobs which involve uh, putting up a front? Yeah, right. That's a good time to enter monastic life. <laughs> um, I was in a situation like that where I was asked to put up a front, asked to hate the enemies of our company, asked to um, like uh, cheat on my timesheet and, and do other kinds of improper things. Uh, so that's, that's um, uh, or else sometimes one is in a, a social environment which is very stressful. Uh, so one idea is to grow where you're planted and to just cope with uh, the uh, difficulties and challenges and to just stay there and don't move and be uh, compassionate and learn to be uh, contented with your situation even though the situation is, is um, uh, difficult in a lot of ways. Uh, you're not going to find a perfect situation. Um, on the other hand, it's also true that, uh, uh, especially a situation that is uh, ethically uh, compromised, uh, it might be that you have to find a way to get out of that situation in order to make progress. And so it's your own call, call and it's a, it's a very difficult call to make, because some, sometimes you should say and sometimes you should leave. Um, probably... Uh, in terms of a family, if if one is uh, married and are in a committed relationship, and there's uh, children involved, I I generally think that it's uh, good to uh, try to work it out and resolve it, so it's not try to avoid breaking the marriage unless unless you really have to. Um, um, but if there's abuse. If there's real abuse, sometimes we have to go. I take time for uh, one question from the floor. Okay. It's interesting, your very last comment had to do with something I'm, I've been just waiting for and need, needing to hear, because to kind of piggyback on what the, the issue was just brought to the question of how do you deal with the constant bombardment of negativity, whether it's judgment or, I mean, and, and a work, a very stressful work environment where your efforts are being thwarted or judged or, I mean, constant, you know, how do you, how do you separate it? How do you, the non-reactive part of what you were addressing today is something that I struggle with regularly. <laughs> Because mm -hmm. work is extraordinarily stressful. Mm -hmm. So the constant bombardment of having to separate and not react is so challenging. Well, when I was uh, the mother of the multiple employer welfare plan with all of those thousands of employees and their, and their health insurance and their money and their bodies and, and uh, being the central office for complaints, I think I sometimes... Uh, had that, and I actually 
uh, the Buddhism was like so helpful in being able to stay uh, stable and to not pick up and get all distressed every time something happened. Um, I would say that the combination of the Dhamma and learning to practice a reflective listening or nonviolent communication or something, and then if if you can practice it yourself, um, you may find that um, your own peace of mind is is better, and also that other people will notice the difference that they're not able to get your goat uh, the same way that they did before. Um, but uh, yeah, stress is not. Um, it's not the point. So, so you you kind of just have to know. This is dukkha. It's my problem. It's my my puzzle. My challenge. How to find out how to hold the situation without picking it up and internalizing it. It's like part of what that that grasping and and craving is. That that like it becomes a, an existential threat when there's a criticism and stress put on or when there's a need or a necessity to do things. And instead, um, to just shift a priority and say, I want to stay centered, I want to stay mindful, I want to keep my loving-kindness going. And you may find that even though it looks like you're slow, looks it might look like you're not as speedy as you used to be, it might be that you would be more productive as an employee because of uh, developing, taking the extra time, whatever it takes, to bring yourself back to center, uh, to take the minute of mindfulness or the, you know, a couple of deep breaths, and to to center yourself and um, uh, try to, you know, regularly uh, release the stress and not get completely absorbed into all the external things, thinking that solving, if you solve the next thousand problems that come across your desk, that that's going to take care of the problem, because it really doesn't take care of anything, really. That's the best I can say. Okay, so thank you all for your uh, patient listening and for your uh, good intentions, for the sincerity of your practice. I felt uh, quite inspired in the last sit of meditation to see that even though it was late in the afternoon, that a lot of people were really working it. And I hope that you'll find something here that you can use and take home and uh, continue to uh, develop and uh, grow your meditation practice and grow your your wisdom and your uh, uh, personal uh, welfare as a result of practicing this Dhamma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.